Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Dirk Jaspers. I serve as one of the elders here and have the joy of serving as a pastor. And for those of you who are new or whether you've been here for a long time, welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you are new, whether you're just passing through Hot Springs or you're looking for a church, I would love a chance to meet you after the service. I'll be right out in the back there. Please say hi. We'll be happy to answer any questions you have about our church or, more importantly, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning we are continuing our walk through the Psalms, and it's been sort of a combination greatest hits and sampler. We've been looking at some of the most famous Psalms, Psalms like Psalm 23. We'll look at Psalm 100 in a few weeks. But we've also been looking at representative Psalms. Psalms that help us understand other psalms in the Bible, because I don't plan on preaching through all 150 this summer. Now, some of the psalms help us to praise God. They're in major keys, praising God for his care, for his work in creation, for the joy that we have in him. Other psalms are in a more minor key. They are psalms that deal with the realities of life in our world. Psalms we can sing when it feels as though God is far away from us, even when it feels as though he has abandoned us. Other psalms that we can sing when we are in suffering, or like our psalm this morning, psalms that we can sing when we look out at our world and see significant injustice. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 58, is a difficult psalm, but it is a psalm that is meant to give us language and to help us to process the injustice we see in the world. And the reality is that injustice is rampant. Turn on the news, look outside your door. A few statistics on that. In our own country, since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, over 63 million babies were murdered through, an, through abortion. It's an average of more than 1 million per year during that time with 930,160 killed in 2020 alone. And those are statistics from a pro-abortion group. Or take human trafficking. In 2016, according to the UN, an estimated 4.8 million people, 4.8 million, were trafficked for purposes of commercial sexual exploitation, with another 20 million trafficked for purposes of forced labor. Or if the statistics aren't enough, we've seen images in the recent past in our history of rampant injustice. Think of the piles of shoes collected in the German concentration camps. Millions of Ukrainians starved to death during the 20th century by the Soviet Union. Or in our own nation's history, not so long ago, you can think of the lynching postcards that were popular in turn of the century where entire towns would go and pose in public with the bodies of those they were hanging from bridges, and then they would send it to their neighbors. Or even in the church, the many examples of leaders who have abused their positions to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. But as if those dramatic examples weren't bad enough, we also know the more common everyday pictures of injustice. Land stolen from the poor by those more powerful than them. Judges who pervert justice for a bribe. A world in which dog devours dog, and it often seems as though they get away with it. 
So what do we do with the injustice that is in the world? And there is real injustice in the world. How do we respond? What sorts of songs can we possibly sing in this reality? Well, Psalm 58, a serious psalm dealing with serious issues, shows us an answer. And it shows us that in the midst of the very real injustice in the world, we can look to God for justice. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 58. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, but follow along in whatever version you have. Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to the tune, Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. David writes, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This psalm, Psalm 58, is a serious psalm dealing with serious matters. And to be honest, it's a difficult psalm. It's one of those psalms that if you're reading through the psalms, often we don't quite know what to do with it. We might say, I don't know how to handle this. I'll just set it in a box over here. It's a psalm that because of its violent language, oh God, break the teeth in their mouths, make them like a snail that dissolves into slime, has been exempted from some liturgies in churches that use liturgical traditions. They go through all the psalms in a year, but they have alternate liturgies to avoid some of these. For some, we ask, is this even a Christian sort of psalm? Is this anti-Christian? How do we deal with a psalm like this when Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us? Is this a psalm that we can use legitimately when Paul tells us to bless those who persecute us, to bless and not to curse? What do we do with this language? And it's not just limited to this psalm. There are multiple psalms in the Psalter that call for God's judgment in very personal terms. In fact, one estimate shows that about a third of the Psalms contain at least some of this material. What do we do with this? What does it have to say to us thousands of years later? Well, I want to suggest to you, and I want to show you from the text and from elsewhere in Scripture, that these, this Psalm and Psalms like it are given to us for a reason. We believe, as the Apostle Paul teaches in Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That means the Psalms that we love 
like Psalm 23 and Psalm 100. It also means the Psalms that maybe make us a little queasy, like Psalm 58. But I want to show you, and my argument for you this morning, our main idea is that we live in a world of injustice. But in that injustice, we ought to look to God for justice. And that Psalm 58 gives us language to help us do that. So, diving into the text. Verses 1-2, through the first thing we see is that injustice is a reality. This is something that David and the Bible again and again look square in the face. They don't minimize injustice. They don't turn a blind eye to injustice. They look at it. And David does this beginning with a two rhetorical questions that I believe are intended to be sarcastic questions. Questions that I would argue to you are intended for human rulers in positions of great authority. He writes verse 1, Do you indeed decree what is right? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? Here he is addressing mighty ones. If you're looking in the ESV or the NASB, it might say, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? If you're looking at the NIV, it might say, do you indeed decree what is right, you mighty ones? And while some take this to be spiritual powers, I think the best reading is human beings. You see the term translated gods in the ESV or the NASB is the word mighty ones. And it's usually used of false gods in the Old Testament, but there are times where it is used to refer to human rulers. In the book of Exodus, it refers to judges. In the book of Ezekiel, it refers to political leaders of the nations around. And so David here, I believe, is addressing these mighty ones, these human rulers, and he says, do you do justice, rulers of the earth? Do you decree what is right? Do you judge uprightly? And what is David's answer? No. This is an indictment against the rulers of the earth. He says, you are failing to do justice as you should. You are failing to act righteously on the earth. And not only are you failing to do justice, you're falling short of it, you're actually actively pursuing injustice. He describes them plotting in verse 2. He says, no, you don't do justice, and instead, in your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. He says the leaders of the earth, the human rulers, are not doing justice and they're actually plotting how they can take advantage of the poor and the vulnerable and the oppressed. David is not naive about the world. David looks evil square in the face. And if we look at our world, it hasn't changed very much. The same things happen. Injustice often runs rampant, and justice often seems hard to find. So the first thing we need to see is that injustice is a reality, and David looks at that and he says that that is what's true in our world. It was true thousands of years ago in David's day. It's true in our day. Not much has changed. But to make matters worse, verses 3-5, through David then describes how there are some a group that he calls the wicked, and this isn't everyone, but this is a particular group who refuse to repent and continue to prey on the weak and the vulnerable. He describes them using language of a predator, of a poisonous cobra. Verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Because from the very beginning, they refuse to follow God's ways. They refuse to walk in righteousness. But they, right from the beginning, are speaking lies. 
And he describes them as a vicious, poisonous predator. He says they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. Describes them as a snake that goes and bites others and poisons them and kills them. This is strong language. He's not mincing words. So they are this poisonous snake that is attacking and biting and killing, but they are a snake that refuses to listen, refuses to be charmed. Specifically, the wicked refuse to listen to God and refuse to repent of their attacks on the weak. Verse 4, They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder, or we might translate this cobra, that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers, of the cunning enchanter. He says they're like snakes that have closed their ears by their own willfulness and refuse to listen to anyone else. Refuse to listen to the charmer who tells them not to attack other human, other beings. And they purposefully have closed their ears and set themselves on this path of attacking the weak and attacking the vulnerable, even attacking the righteous. And so David here is painting a picture of the wicked who are this particular group that refuses to listen to God, that has purposefully closed their ears, and that is attacking and biting and killing. So he's shown us injustice is a reality, and there are some who no matter how many times they are called to turn from sin, persistently and continually and unrepentantly continue to ignore God's call to turn and to embrace righteousness. And this is what we see in our world. There's a reason 4.8 million people in 2016 were trafficked for sexual purposes because there are those in the world who persistently continue in evil and ignore God's call for repentance and righteousness. So what do we do with the injustice in the world? It's a reality. We all see it. And if you don't see it, look out the window, turn on the TV, open a newspaper, you'll see it. What do we do? Perhaps for some of us, the temptation is just to close our eyes, close our ears and say, I don't want to think about that. I just want to keep it out of my mind. I don't want to have to deal with it. So we minimize it. That's not what David does. David looks at it square in the face. He addresses it and he looks at it clearly and responds to it. Perhaps we're also tempted to despair, to look at our world and say, you know what? If this is the way the world works, maybe God's not listening. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he won't respond. Think of a song by the rock band U2 from the 1990s. It's dealing with some of these themes. He says, God's got his phone off the hook. Would he even pick up if he could? It's been a while since we saw him hanging around this neighborhood. So he looks and he says, I don't see God around here. He doesn't seem to be doing anything about the injustice in the world that I see. And so there's a temptation to despair. Or even for some of us, perhaps, if we get right down to it and we're honest about it, we are tempted to believe this. And I just need to dive into this dog-eat-dog world and fight for myself. Think of the musical Les Miserables. How many of you have seen that or heard it? There's a song, it's in the musical, it's not in the movie, where Tenardier, who's an atheist uh, in the book and in the musical, is looting dead bodies off of a battlefield. And he says this, he says, It's a world where the dog eats the dog, where they kill for bones in the street. And God in his heaven, he don't interfere, because he's dead. 
as the stiffs at my feet. So when Tenardier looks at the world, he says, I don't see God any place. I don't think he even exists, and it's just a dog-eat-dog world, and so I'm going to eat the other dogs, and I'm going to loot dead bodies in this graveyard. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to despair at the injustice we see in the world and say either, I don't think you exist, God, or I don't even know if you care. On the other hand, another problematic approach is that we can seek to take justice into our own hands, try to do something about it by our own strength and our own power. Say, I'm going to go take out the wicked. I'm going to go end this myself. But the answer we see in this psalm is something different. David doesn't ignore evil. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. But he also doesn't despair. And he doesn't take matters into his own hands. Instead, he turns to God in the midst of injustice and asks God to deal with it. He asks God to deal with the wicked. And we see this in the language of verse 6 through 9. I'm going to walk through this. In this section, David calls for God to put an end to the wicked, but he also calls for something more than that. He is calling for restraint of the wicked to prevent them from continuing to prey on the weak and the oppressed. Notice what he says, verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. He doesn't say, I'm going to go break the teeth in their mouths. He says, oh God, you do this. But he does ask for it. And he's asking for something more than just God knock their lights out. He's not asking God to get involved in a cosmic hockey fight. He's asking for God to restrain wickedness. And I think we see this through the mention of teeth and fangs in verse 6. Notice how that shows up twice. Well, what has he just compared the unrepentant wicked to in verse 4? Snakes. Snakes with venomous fangs. Snakes that are biting people with their venomous fangs and killing them. So now he says, God, break their teeth out. He says, oh God, these young lions, these predators are devouring people with their fangs. Tear out their fangs, O oh Lord. So he's asking for God to take away the means by which these unjust, wicked, unrepentant people are devouring the weak. He's saying they're like poisonous snakes that are biting and killing, so take away their means of biting. Take away their fangs. Knock out their teeth. He's calling for God to restrain wickedness. He is calling for God to put an end to the unrepentant reign of wickedness, but he's also calling for God to restrain it on behalf of those who are victims of these attacks. And we see this theme continue in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs away. They're the mighty ones. They're the ones who are in control. They're the ones who seem to be devouring the weak. He says, make them like water that's here today, gone tomorrow. He says, when they aim their arrows, so when they're targeting the weak and the vulnerable from their position of strength and injustice, let their arrows be blunted. Make their sharp, deadly arrows that they're shooting at the weak into nerf arrows. That can't do any damage. He's asking God to deal with those who are committing sin, but also to deal with the effects that it has on the weak and on the vulnerable. And he continues, verse 8, Let them, who he's already compared to great, powerful, dangerous beings like snakes and lions, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Make them a weak creature that's going to melt away in the sun. Make them like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. He says, I wish they never would have been born. 
Verse 9, wipe them away. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, sweep them away, O God. And so we see that David turns to God in the midst of injustice and he says, God, I want you to deal with this and I want you to deal with them and I want you to protect the weak and the vulnerable. This is not just a generic call to God, take out anyone I don't like. It's a specific call rooted in the context of lack of justice and commission of injustice calling on God to act. But if we're honest, we still are, might be uncomfortable with this sort of language. Is this really the sort of language that we who follow Christ can use? Is this appropriate for us? And I want to suggest that in certain limited cases, exceptional cases, this can be appropriate for Christians to use. But only in certain circumstances and only as sort of a last resort. This is sort of this is not a prayer that should be our default prayer. Your first instinct when you see injustice or you see sin shouldn't be, oh God, break those teeth. Our first instinct should be, as Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. Our first prayer should be, Lord, draw them to repentance and faith in you. After all, we all, like sheep, had gone astray. We all were deserving of God's judgment. And it is only because of the grace that we have in Christ who shed His blood on the cross for us that we who were once God's enemies have become His friends. And so our first instinct should be to pray for those who persecute us, to ask that God would bring those who do injustice to repentance and faith in Him and that they would turn from unrighteousness and sin. And our first instinct should be to forgive when we are hurt and when we are attacked. But I do want to suggest to you that there are certain circumstances where this sort of a prayer is appropriate for us. Part of the reason I would argue that is because we see these sorts of things elsewhere in the New Testament. The apostles did not see this sort of prayers, prayers for God to bring judgment on people, as incompatible with the call to love their neighbor or love their enemies. For example, the apostles who heard Jesus' teaching on that very point in Acts 1, they pray psalms, two other psalms that are cursing psalms, in reference to Judas, who had betrayed them and betrayed their Lord. In Galatians 1, the apostle Paul proclaims a curse on anyone, even himself or another being, an angelic being that would preach a gospel contrary to his gospel. And perhaps most clearly, in Revelation 6, we see those who have been martyred for their faith in Christ crying out to God for justice. Verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so there is instances in the New Testament where we see the apostles, those who followed in Jesus' call to love their enemies, nevertheless praying these sorts of prayers. But they didn't just pray them all the time, and they didn't just pray them for every and any reason. They prayed them in light of significant sin, significant injustice that took advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. Injustice that wasn't just a one-time deal. It wasn't like someone had committed one sin against them. Injustice or sin that was repeated. And I think that fits with the pattern we see in Psalm 58. The psalmist is not leveling these prayers at everyone and anyone who does him any wrong. And he doesn't seem to be leveling them at those who do something wrong but then repent and turn from it. 
Remember, the wicked he's talking about are those he describes who have stopped their ears, who have refused to listen to the snake charmer, and who are just continuing on and on and on to take advantage and attack and kill the vulnerable. And so this is a prayer that is coming out of significant, ongoing, unrepentant injustice on the parts of these people. And so our first prayer should be, God, turn them from sin. Turn them to repentance and faith in you. Bring about a change. But in cases where someone is repeatedly and unrepentantly continuing to abuse and attack the oppressed, this sort of psalm can, in limited circumstances, be appropriate but only when prayed with the realization of our own sinfulness, the mercy God has shown to us, and the justice that he brings. But I do think this language helps us process. So as an example, abortion's been in the news a lot. I'm not going to keep harping on that. But this sort of psalm is not appropriate to pray against someone who has had an abortion but has repented of that. It may be more appropriate to pray against an abortion doctor who's been performing those for 40 years and has gotten rich off of it and continues to do so. These are prayers that are reserved for instances of egregious, continued, unrepentant evil. And they're prayers that are aimed not just because we're mad about evil, but to protect the weak and the vulnerable. So, we see that injustice is a reality. That there are many who refuse to repent of sin. But the reality is that there is grace for those who do repent. And that we can have forgiveness in Christ. But for those who refuse to repent, we can and should at times ask God to deal with the wicked. And even if we don't pray this sort of cursing prayer, whenever we see injustice, we should go to God. We should say, I see injustice in the world, God. God, will you do something about it? Will you protect the vulnerable? Will you bring an end to unrighteousness and sin? But the last thing we see, verses 10 through 11, is that we can rejoice in God's justice. That injustice does not end the story. Injustice does not win. Lack of justice does not prevail. That one day God will bring justice. That God will judge the earth, even though human judges fail to judge uprightly and instead deal out violence on the earth. Verse 10, David writes, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is grisly stuff, right? Saying the righteous, when they see God's vengeance on sin, they will rejoice. And they will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. Similar language is present in Isaiah 66 and Revelation 19 and 20. So this is not just an Old Testament thing. It's in the New Testament. And what the David is describing here is he's saying we live in a world where there is so much injustice that our hearts ought to take that injustice seriously and we ought to cry out, how long, O Lord, how long will this injustice come? God, bring judgment, bring justice, put an end to the abuse of children, put an end to the exploitation of the poor, put an end to abuse by those in positions of authority, especially in your church. Put an end to this injustice. Our hope is not that God just kind of evacuates us from the world and we fly off and live on some other planet and the world just continues the way it goes. Our hope is that God puts an end to injustice and God puts an end to unrighteousness. And that will be a good day for us. It's a good day for David. It's a good day for the people of God in the Old Testament. 
It's a good day for the people of God in the New Testament. And verse 11, we're told, mankind on that day will see, everyone will see that God is just, that there is a reward for the righteous, that even though it often seems as though nice guys finish last in our world, as though the weak dogs get devoured by the more powerful dogs, that the sheep are eaten by the wolves, the reality is that God is still in control, that God will reward the righteous, and that surely there is a God who judges on earth. Here in verse 11, there's an intentional contrast with verses 1-2. through There you have gods who do not judge uprightly and who deal out violence on the earth. Here you have a God who judges on the earth. And so the psalmist says, I don't see justice from human sources here, but I'm trusting that you will bring justice, God. I don't see a world where it seems as though the wicked are punished or the righteous are rewarded, but I'm trusting that in the end, you will bring reward for the righteous. You will judge the earth. And that is my hope. That is good news. That is something I can take to the bank. And so the psalmist is pinning his hopes on God's character. And he's trusting that in the end, no one will be saying God's got his phone off the hook. No one will say God in his heaven doesn't interfere because everyone will see that God is a holy God who is righteous, who cares about what happens in his world, and who will bring an end to all oppression and wickedness. And the psalmist says that is good news. And it is good news for us. I want to close with a few verses from the end of Revelation, just to show us what this looks like in the New Testament, where the people of God praise God for the coming judgment that he brings on those who are committing injustice. They say this, Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. And then later on in the chapter, verse 6, they say, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. We serve a God of justice, a God who wins in the end, a God who overcomes the evil we see in the world, and that should give us great reason to rejoice and to praise Him even when our world seems dark and unjust. Please pray with me. O Lord, You make Yourself known by Your acts of justice. Living God, deliver us from a world without justice and a future that seems without mercy. In Your mercy, establish justice. And in Your justice, remember the mercy revealed to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you that surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely you are the God who judges rightly on earth. We praise you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.